Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. Guess what? Mm, I don't know. I don't know. It's uh, too close to the top of the show for me to be able to guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am going to a little thing called the Canadian Labour Congress Convention. Oh. Yes, which <laughs> means I am going to be in Montreal for one night only on May 9th. May 9th. I have a feeling... I have a feeling you might be going to the CLC convention as well. I am going. I am. I am. And I have the lucky privilege of being there more than one night. <laughs> Whoa. Well, I'm thinking, I'm thinking we've been talking about, you know, a little bit more engagement with our audience. Why don't we do a little something, a little meet and greet for our Montreal listeners, our Montreal community out there? What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great idea. I love that idea. Yeah, me too. So you know what, listeners, we're going to do something when we're in Montreal. We don't know what yet, but if you would like to book off the night of Tuesday, May 9th, that's the only possible night because like I said, I'm only there for one day. <laughs> so uh, if you are in Montreal and you'd like to hang out for a night, we'll figure out the details. We'll let you know next week and on our social medias and come come see us in Montreal. I love it. Is it is social media really social medias? You know, I don't as it came out of my mouth, it was one of those things where I was like <laughs> media is already a plural word, Sandy. Why did you put an s on the end? And I was hoping we could skate past it without anyone ever acknowledging it and now we've acknowledged it too much. So, thank you for that, Nora. You know what? Sometimes we just have to acknowledge our errors. You know, I mean, maybe not. Maybe we don't actually have to ever. I don't know. I'm going to leave that one up in the air. <sighs> anyway, how are you, Sandy, other than being excited to be in Montreal in two weeks? Oh, I'm so great. This was such a great weekend. Um, it's Like I said, the weather has been getting better out here in Los Angeles, as I told you a few weeks ago. So I went on a nice long hike yesterday. Today I went to the beach and just biked up and down the beach. It was just really, really wonderful. So I am feeling great. Really great. How was your weekend? My weekend was great. And I want to talk a bit about what I got to do this past, uh, these past couple of days. So I spoke to three groups of people in three different events uh, last week, and they were so much fun. So much fun. The first event I admit, I've talked about on the show, it was in Gravenhurst. There was a really great group of people that came out and we were bouncing ideas around of like, what could labor do that would be radical, but radical and perhaps a little surprising. So do you know, Sandy, one of the best ideas that came out of this kind of little conversation that we had, and I, I should say also as part of the Enough is Enough campaign from the Ontario Federation of Labor. So shout out to the OFL and Patty Coates, who's the president who made the trip to Gravenhurst to make that whole thing happen. And of course, the, the local labor council that, that really was the engine. But, but do you want to hear my, my favorite idea that I'm now going to be like, I don't even know, I'm going to talk about it like a lot. <laughs> Ooh, I'm desperate. Tell me. Okay. Well, one of the constant issues that people deal with is a lack of access to healthcare. And the question was posed, and I don't remember if it was like suggested and then I kind of riffed on it or whatever, but it was like, why don't unions hire their own doctor for their members? Hmm. Like, that seems like a pretty obvious and good idea, does it not? Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. You know, you get the, the salary together. You find someone that has, you know, good enough politics. You you have a, a base of, of workers and their families, and, and maybe there might be extra spots for the doctor, and they can even take com some community people or not. Maybe limit the patient load and let a doctor have a work-life balance. I don't know. It. I think what is interesting about this idea is that it kind of challenges the public health model because you would be kind of privately organizing a doctor, but it's something that we've had for a long time in Canada. I mean, companies have their own doctors. That's not That's not new or, or different. And uh, it's just like, hmm, that's, uh, that's nice to start thinking about like things that are completely not being done right now that are, that are, that would buck the status quo, but that would really, I don't mean, help a lot of people. Well, I mean, my, my, my immediate mm -hmm, mm -hmm was a little bit of like nervousness around the fact that it is, it, it is a private option. So I would want to figure out a way to 
if that was something that unions were to step into, figure out a way for it to be a model of how the public, uh, what the public health system should be, um, and something that shepherds in uh, something new that's universal. Like, how can um, this option for members uh, create uh, uh, demand, uh, create a vision for what's possible in public health care. That would be uh, really interesting because what I wouldn't want to see is like um, some sort of like a version of the food bank happening, you know, like where where there's like this stopgap measure or this measure that that gets instituted that then becomes the the standard uh, that that ties a service that ties care to work where care or this service should just be tied to the fact that you need it. Mm-hmm. Yes. However, in the model where it's being coordinated by the union, it actually becomes this democratically controlled option that, yes, is outside of the public healthcare system, but is still in public hands and would still be operated, obviously, at a not-for-profit. One of the reasons why I've been thinking about this a lot is in Quebec City, there's a clinic that was organized to specifically help people who struggle with, with housing. And It was fully private. It was funded privately and it operated outside of the health system. And after a few years, it was so successful and obviously necessary that the argument was there for the government to just start funding it. And that's ended up that ended up what is what happened. So I think that that's also a possibility, too, is that, you know, you you, you create these systems that function really well and then the argument becomes much easier for the public system to absorb it. But anyway, so those are kind of the kinds of conversations. I love that. And the one other thing that I would say is like we, we've talked a number of times about um, the inability for progressive uh, uh, organizers or, or the failure of, of progressive movements to do long term planning. And, uh, you know, like now would be an amazing time to try to set something like that up with a view mm. towards uh, a provincial election at some point in the future, if we're talking about Ontario. And of course, that can be taken up anywhere where you are trying to create the model for something, create the demand for something, uh, create, uh, you know, the, the public the public will to support something that then around an election time, someone can point to the success of. So yeah, I think that that's, that is a fantastic idea of how unions can have a a significant impact on, on the the political system. Mm. And do you know the other big theme of the conversations that I had, I I also got to speak with um, elementary school teachers who are, Really burnt out, really burnt out. They're the, they're the ones seeing the impact of everything in the most kind of pure way, like through through children, through the manifestation of, of like the, the, the anxiety and the stress and the difficulties that people are experiencing all kind of put through the, the lives, the comments, the behaviors of children. And the conversations that we had that night were all about community and the importance of building community and the importance of building community, not just around hardcore politics, like actually just building things that people can come together. And even the, in the entire retreat, the idea behind this retreat was to give union members a break. And so it wasn't like a heavy conference with lots of sessions that they were all expected to be at. It was recognizing that folks had just finished working, that they were giving up a weekend and allowing them to just have a nice time and to relax and to learn a couple of things. And it was like, yes, 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 yes. This is what unions should do. So shout out to those folks. Uh, the a- Amazing. Thank you so much for the invitation. I, was, I had such a blast being there. But this is exactly, I think, what when, when unions are looking around going, well, what can we really do to, to engage people? It's like figure out what they're struggling with and try and provide them with some sort of outlet. Like that's really, really important. Absolutely. That's great. I'm glad you got to experience that this week. Um, it sounds like just like such a wonderful way to spend the week. Yeah. I had a lot of gratitude. Well, I hope you have some more. (laughs) Of course, of course, there's no finite amount of our gratitude. It is not something that can be bought and sold. This week, thank you so much to everybody who subscribed, who listened, uh, who listened for the first time, who listened for the 50th time. Uh, thanks to the folks who are like, hey, Nora, I'm still on episode, uh, you know, 220, trying to make my way up. I got caught behind. It's awesome. We love it. We love you all. And especially the folks this week that, that, that pledged for the first time or that changed their donation. In particular, Jordan, 
Christine, Stephanie, and Nat. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you all so much for your support. One more thing to say before we get into the topic for this week, which is that, as we said last week, we would love to do a sort of Ask Me Anything episode. So a few of you have sent in some questions and we're, we're going through them. We are considering them, but feel free to continue doing that. We don't have an exact date for when we are going to uh, do that episode. So you've got time. Keep sending in your questions for us your comments or your ideas for what we should talk about. Um, And you can do that anywhere. So Patreon, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and our email, which is sandyandnora at protonmail.com. That's right. That's right. So today we have a most important conversation. A conversation that... The very most. (laughs) A conversation that only happens online, happening online. I don't know. Maybe people are talking about in real life, but having just been in like the real world for a couple of days and then looking back at the dumpster fire that is Twitter, it's like, maybe this doesn't matter. But I think that the conversation outside of perhaps the individual players on Twitter is a useful conversation to have. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this comes from, I don't know, like whatever is going on on your Twitter, (laughs) Nora, uh, but also like what uh, Twitter is, is, I I suppose, like pushing to people. Uh, Some of you, I I mean, I don't know what any of y'all's Twitter is looking like these days, but I know that the content that's being pushed to my For You page, it's, it's, trending towards more conservative. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know why, uh, but it is. Um, peppered with like Nora and like random stuff about, uh, I don't know, like uh, pop culture. So uh, this week there was something being pushed to my For You page by uh, someone named... God, I don't even know what this person's name is, but it, it's it's like a a <laughs> a a comment on uh, how like she's like sorry, but I don't want to feel sorry uh, if I'm walking past a group of unhoused people in a park who are like um, who are using drugs and feel unsafe so call the police I'm gonna like do that and I feel unapologetic for it because I I need to feel safe and then she goes into how that has happened to her recently and so she called 211 this person lives in Edmonton and describes that she's like that this has happened to her recently and so she calls 211 which I imagine is a, a a service um, for for non emergencies, and the people at two one one told her to call nine one one, and so she calls nine one one for this non emergency in which she is feeling unsafe because she is walking by a bunch of people in a park, <laughs> who, who I suppose she's made some assumptions about, or maybe she's like uh, fully witnessing um, uh, people doing stuff. But either way, uh, what she has described is that they are. Um, unhoused and uh, using drugs. And so she calls 911 and the police uh, say that they can't do anything about it, I suppose. And uh, that makes her um, upset and uh, go to Twitter to say that she has the right to call the police uh, when she feels unsafe, even though the police in this story didn't do anything to help her feel safe. And even though her feelings of unsafeness seem to be borne out by literally nothing. So, I, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> like, push to my For You page. I imagine push to a lot of other people's For You page because it was it went a little bit viral, and then you responded. Well, did I respond or did I... Well, okay, I did respond. I uh, Okay, so I also saw it on my For You YouTube page that did not show up at all in my tweets. And I have to be honest, I don't go to the For You YouTube page because I know that it's all this like torqued, like making you want to fight with people. And I certainly get on the, t- the For You page. And I'm like, oh, what the hell? But I was stuck in a flight delay. And so what the fuck? So I, I, I mean, this is someone who I've, I've known-ish on Twitter for a couple of years. And so I responded to her and was like, this is a bad tweet. And... 
what you did was bad. <laughs> like, that's it. But I thought it was very useful to actually bounce off of that uh, co- that comment or that, that uh, story to just like maybe step back and look at the role that the police play as being um, helpful to white women to solidify their place in the racial hierarchy within society, right? And so I made a comment about that. I didn't respond to this individual. I didn't name her. I was just like, if uh, if you're a white woman, I mean, here's some stuff to think about. And I and I wrote a a, a thread. Um, now, annoyingly, it wasn't even the most viral thread I had this past weekend. <laughs> it's something else that was even worse because people think that um, soldiers in Europe died for our right to vote. But anyway, that's a whole other fucking bunch of shit. Um, but I did also watch that on your Twitter, which <laughs> is is very, very bizarre that people think that they have the right to vote in Canada because of any world war. That is very bizarre. Well, and also <laughs> but, not even the world war. Hey. Buddy was also lumping in the Boer War into that and some other like more minor, absolutely not democratic protecting wars <laughs> into the mix whatever. But yeah, so I mean, this is not a conversation to just uh, dump all over an individual because we're not even going to say who she is. So I mean, don't don't dump on her. But it is an interesting question. So there are two sets of people in this conversation. And the question of safety is in the air. Whose safety is happening here? Who's who's playing out safety? Who's not playing out safety? Who is the danger? How do we read this situation if we're going to be a bit more critical than, oh, my God, those those folks are freaky and I'm going to call the police because I feel threatened? Yeah, I mean, that's the interesting thing about the tweet and some of the responses, um, which, you know, there's two camps of responses, people who generally are like, um, listen, this is like useless. And um, why do you feel unsafe in this situation? That's one camp. And the other camp, which is that, which is like, totally, you have that you totally should. And, you know, like the police should have helped you and like, absolutely. And the interesting thing there is that she is saying that she feels unsafe. She hasn't really qualified why. A couple tweets later, she says that, you know, uh, she, she has this discussion about how people who use drugs are unpredictable and, and therefore, like, anything can happen, <laughs> I suppose, which is like, okay, uh, sure, like, that seems to be built on a, a number of assumptions and, and stigma and, um, you know, like, just like the, the, the idea of how you marginalize uh, particular people in society. Uh, but there, there doesn't seem to be any discussion about what it would take for this person to then feel safe. We're not talking about her actual safety. We're not talking about like whether or not she was ever actually in danger. And I mean, that's in in her in the way that she describes her experience from the get go. This is about her feelings. She feels a certain way, and she feels as though it is it is um, her her right to be able to call upon some sort of service to have her no longer feel that way. And in order for her to then feel a different way, to feel safe, what she is alluding to but is not actually saying is that she wants someone to 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 eliminate the problem. And her problem that she has identified is that there are people who are unhoused, who are in a public place, and who are using drugs. Those like four things that you can identify there that she's saying makes her unsafe. Any one of those things being addressed by the police would make any of those people who she is saying are making her feel unsafe, actually unsafe. And so for, for those people who, who are like, yeah, she's in the right here, what you're actually arguing for, what those folks are actually arguing for, is to make other people unsafe, actually unsafe, because her feeling of safety, her feeling safe, whatever emotions or feelings or stigma um, behind it, the fact that she feels unsafe is more important than the actual safety the actual physical material safety of the people who are using this public space. And from what we can tell of her tweets, 
not at all bothering her. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a really excellent case study in the individual versus the collective or systemic issues versus acute issues. And it's also an interesting psychological study into that question of what is safety. So, I mean, the reason like I. I, as I say, I didn't actually want to respond directly to her because I don't think, like, her mind's not going to change. The per- anybody that decides to tweet something like that is, like, making a decision to talk about this publicly for a reason. But when you have competing safeties happening in, in, the, in the same location, and the, the only thing that the police could do to make her feel safe or to make someone who's a who's coming across a situation like this and feels unsafe to be feeling safer feeling safer is to what to go up to these individuals to confiscate their drugs which might have to include some violence uh which will also make them more desperate probably which may also cost them money which they may or may not have which then will cause other problems well and if 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 addiction is indeed involved in this like uh she she references them as uh, like her her words as addicts. I mean, I don't know how she knows these people so well, but like you know, uh, if addiction is indeed involved, and a removal of like taking away of those drugs could make people like put people in mortal danger, like could could make their could put their health safety um, in in serious jeopardy. Yeah. Absolutely. And so then then what's the other steps? Well, they perhaps are forcibly removed from the park, which is their park as much as is as anyone else's park. It's a fucking public park. And so once you've removed people, then where do they go? What's the process of removal? That then becomes another kind of unsafe experience for these individuals. And then we can look at and I should say that the person in question knows all of this very well because they work for a I mean, government. <laughs> so this is nothing. None of this is like a secret. Then then we talk about the whole shelter situation or the whole temporary housing situation, how completely unsafe that is. And do they get dropped off or do they get do they get put into a police car and driven out to the city li- limits on a starlight tour? Do they like who? Know? We don't know. Right. These are the options for how you remove someone from a park, depending on who that person is and, and, and where the heads are at of a, of a specific police officer. And so these are all of the possibilities when one one's safety has been threatened and one reaches to the police to fix it there there's no good option for the people that are being targeted in this all for the safety of this individual whose safety was actually as you said we don't even think is in like actual direct threat the feeling <laughs> like, of safety even if it was the a direct feeling threat of safety the feeling of safety right but even if it was indirect threat, I think that this is also where then 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 we can have like a, a more difficult conversation. It's like, well, what are your options when you're in, in you're directly threatened by someone like, well, newsflash, you don't have the time to call the police no matter what. <laughs> like the, the, the solution to to being in a direct threatening situation is not the police It's not calling the police It's not having more police. It's not having a police a man on every single corner. It's literally talking about the systemic issues that are creating the conditions and that are continuing to make the conditions worse. That's the issue. And you don't have to talk about any of that stuff if you're just like, well, you know, I I call the police because I saw open drug use and it was threatening. Yeah. I mean, the other way that I think is important for people to think about this is like in, in the opposite. Like what if you're in the other position, right? Like you are perhaps, it, maybe it's hard for you to imagine yourself in the other position. So we can take away some of the specifics and just say that, you know, like you're in a park, um, you are in that park with a number of people and somebody is walking by and it's like, that, I don't know, has some sort of reaction to you being in a park with a bunch of people and calls the police. Now you feel unsafe. What is what is what are you going to do? What, do you call someone and say uh, there's a woman, there's a white woman over there who's like calling the police on me and now I feel unsafe? What am I supposed to do in order to make myself feel safe? She's made a number of assumptions about me. What am I supposed to do in order to feel safe? Is it is it also, do you not also have that right to feel safe? Or maybe, maybe you've been evicted and now you feel unsafe because you have nowhere else to go. Where do you call to say, hey, I feel unsafe. Um, I would like somebody to solve this problem for me. There is nowhere, but there is like that that sort of reaction to to simply 
um, the, um, the imagination, um, the imaginary of feeling unsafe, um, and then having the option to call someone to deal with it. And that someone being like an armed force, I mean, that really only exists for certain people. And it doesn't, it certainly doesn't exist for the people who are in that park, whose safety is far more likely to be under threat than the woman who's walking by uh, and who has time to call 211, get instructions to call 911 and get instructions that, that is, <laughs> that's not the place for her to call. I mean, I, I mean, that feeling of unsafety, it certainly lasted a long time for her. Um, and then to, to be able to, to go on Twitter and, 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 uh, and complain about it. I don't know. I think that there is, there's, uh, like it's just this this weird imagination of like who the police are and what we how we can create safety for one, for ourselves like it, it is a bizarre thing as you've sort of noted <laughs> to believe that you can call like a group of people who will like magically appear within 5 seconds like who will like i don't know appear like an apparition by your side and who you can say, those people over there, remove them. Like those people over there, they are the dregs of society. They are the ones who are undesired, who I don't want. And I am upstanding. I, walking by the park, deserve to walk by the park and not have my eyes assaulted by um, these people who I have deemed unworthy. And that makes me feel unsafe. And, and that be okay. And the thing that that is is awful to me is that would have worked in certain circumstances, like the police would show up in certain places, in certain circumstances to remove those people. And that has happened multiple times before. Yeah, no, absolutely. And this, this is why it's like actually dangerous. And this is why it's, it's important enough to warrant us actually having this conversation and, and spending some time on this, because it is life and death for the person you're calling the police on. If you're standing there and you're like, I feel threatened by those people over there and I'm calling the police on them, that becomes life and death for them. And it's a really bizarre, it's so funny because when you were describing, like when you were talking just now, I was (laughs) thinking of this situation once where someone was uh, breaking into my apartment and it was very early in the morning and and, and he was sure that we had his wallet. (laughs) Okay. It's five o'clock in the morning. My partner answers the door as he's trying to break in and the guy starts like assaulting my partner, insisting that he's stolen his wallet. And <laughs> the reason why he thinks we've stolen his wallet is because he's got his doors mixed up and, and he's actually confused from two doors down and no one had stolen his wallet. He had just left it there. But he was like the way that we he my partner got him away from like trying to hit him was <laughs> to convince him to call police. <laughs> oh, wow. And so we read it. Yeah, so we ran across the street to the payphone to call police on us. And then my partner was like, okay, locking the door. <laughs> that was kind of it, right? So it's, it's, it is this like, this bizarre, like, I, I need someone in my corner. I got to I don't have my, my friends aren't around. And my friend, you know, I'm not, in a, I'm not in a group of people that are going to like stand up for me. So I, I got the cops. And, and, and that's, I think, a lot of times how the myth making for white people happens for who the cops are and what their job is and how you can call them if you're, I mean, we know people call 911 all the time for very frivolous and ridiculous things. And, you know, we can joke about people calling 911 for, like, problems of snow or, like, a raccoon got into their attic and this kind of thing. But when you're, when you're calling the police to intervene with people who are using drugs and who are obviously marginalized and, I mean, per the description, who are unhoused, who do not have a place to go at night the same way that the person walking by them in the park does – this is this is exactly how racism is enforced. And I, and I, I should make it clear, too, because people are like, oh, you're assuming that these people are not white. I'm not actually assuming that at all. I'm assuming they are marginalized as they are unhoused and they are using drugs based on the description. But the way that this reinforces white supremacy is because it is this idea that white women especially – have uh, this purity that just cannot be franchised. And if it's franchised, then it's an assault on us. And we need to have some sort of protecting force, the armed arm of the state to come and defend us or to come and defend our honor or something like that. Like it's quite chivalrous, actually, if you really think about it. 
And I'm, I mean, it's Twitter, so it's hard to really tell how many of the people who uh, think that uh, this was an okay thing to do are only saying that because they're friends or because they're right wing bots or whatever. But this is this is where the rubber hits the road, where you're like, okay, here's the situation. What exactly do you do? And it's like, well, there are many options, but calling the police is not one of them. If you're if you're not looking to just promote your personal statue and stature in society, and your you know fake kind of presume notions of safety to hold that over the head of, of someone whose safety will actually be at risk through your actions. Yeah. And I mean, like if you, if you are truly concerned about, um, the, the, the health of your community, then I'm sure you should, you should be frustrated about the state of affairs and how, how, uh, our cities have created, uh, our cities, our provinces, um, uh, our this country has created a situation where uh, people are regularly becoming unhoused and have no other options and have to make the decision of where is the safest place for me to sleep um, and to to make that decision that it's going to be a public place with a lot of other people around where people can see you, actually, because that is probably one of the safer places for you to be. It, it's fine to be concerned about those things, but to, to believe that the police are going to help assist with any of that, I mean, like, come on, like, it's as though you, you must not have been paying attention in the last like 40 some odd years <laughs> to, to make um, that sort of determination uh, in your mind. I think um, as I was listening to you talk, one of the, the interesting things that I, that I think is worth um, spending a little time on is this, this idea of like the role of like the, the fragility of white women in white supremacy and how that idea justifies so much. It, it, it is turned to so often to justify so much um, that of the way that our systems are set up to harm people. And it's worth uh, taking a moment to like really understand that and to, um, to understand it enough that we can, can identify it when it's coming up and point at it and be like, ah, actually that's bullshit. Like I, I you know, during any time that I'm talking about um, police abolition, very often what comes up is like this question of, well, what are we going to do um, with sexual assault or what are we going to do uh, uh, with um, uh, domestic violence? And I mean, it's like we don't do anything about those things now. But the question, that question about what are we going to do with those issues like as a society, I know you're not talking about in indigenous women. I know you're not talking about black women. I know you're not talking about marginalized women. I know you're not talking about sex workers because these are issues that are among the most common forms of violence in the entire world that the police are not engaging with in any way that is helpful. And so, but it comes up as something that justifies the existence of police and justifies the way that we are able to call on police. And I mean, that should make anyone who fits into that demographic pretty fucking pissed off because it's not real. It's like you're being used to justify something um, that is harming someone else. It comes up um, in conversations that are centered around transphobia and hate of trans people. This like, well, we need to protect women in bathrooms or we need to protect the fragile, the fragile women's sports. Like, I, I mean, it's coming up as uh, a justification for hate that actually doesn't have a real concern uh, for the safety of women overall, certainly, but not really white people, white women either. But the, the, the women that they're talking about are white women. I mean, gosh, like I and I feel as though in some of the discussions that I'm watching, you have as someone, you know, on Twitter saying, like, I am a white woman and this is how uh, you should should be thinking about this or understanding this. Uh, and seeing some of the sort of visceral reactions, I'm like, wow, isn't this obvious by now? Shouldn't it be obvious by now? Like, I just, 
I, I would fuck. I mean, you should be like I am. Um, but as a white person, like you, I think that, you know, you should be fucking pissed off to see that coming up as a justification for harming us systemically and structurally um, so many different communities. Mm-hmm. And in this case, directly. I mean, my God, the, the the irony in it all is that the only reason why there was no harm was because the police for the like some random reason was like, that's not our problem, <laughs> which is like, right. Whoa. Saved by donut hour. Nice. Well, and that's the other funny thing about it is it's like literally they proved um, that even in the way that you wanted them to be useful to you, that they're not. <laughs> and you're still like, I should have this power. Why? Why mm-hmm. should you have this power to eject people from a public space that you were just walking by and definitely not using? <laughs> I don't mm. understand why you think you should have that power and why are you calling on, um, you know, like the fragility of your womanhood? Because, I mean, that's the 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 uh, the justification that is in her tweet is like as as a woman who feels mm-hmm. unsafe walking through the park, like that's not going to make you safer. <laughs> like the, the police responding is not going to make you safer in any way, shape or form. But it certainly does give them um, uh, an, an excuse to use and one that they use quite readily. Yeah, it is so interesting. You know, like I <laughs> I was trying to think of the last time that I felt really unsafe in a public space and it was in a park. And I was skiing and I usually feel a little less safe skiing because I'm like attached on skis. So I can't really run, Um, though I could ski away. And then I'm like, I'm not that fast. But again, it's like, what the fuck? Like, stop, you know, just just ski nor you're fine. And I looked back and I'm, I'm on an area where there's no people that aren't skiing. Right. And I looked back one night and there was a man who was walking behind me. And I was like what the fuck that's so weird why is he like he's not skiing there's no path here he would have had to gone through deep snow and it was like it was like an apparition or something right and I was like that's so freaky and so I decided to ski out of there (laughs) you know like it didn't feel good and I skied out of there did it even cross my mind to call the police to say that this person was somewhere where he should have been and he was threatening me by being there like no, you know, like it was all most of it was in my head for sure. There was nothing about this individual that was menacing at all other than it was like at night and he kind of appeared out of nowhere in a place where walkers shouldn't be. But it's like, you know, this is not a justification for like maintaining a, a, a system of a system of violence. Like you are responsible for your own emotional reactions to things. And, you know, you can react in certain ways and maybe it's not the most ideal reaction. But then you're responsible later on for what happened. And I mean, I, I personally would be like, man, I'm so embarrassed. I call 911 rather than announcing to the world that I, that I did that. But there is responsibility. We have responsibility to, 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 to not be ruled by emotion that is often informed by the racist structures in which we live, right? And to interrogate why we feel certain emotions when we feel certain emotions and to not insist that the emotional reaction that we're experiencing is, is, is proof that we're correct or, or, or whatever, but actually just as like, whoa, where did that come from? And, you know, in my case, it came from the fact that I was in, you know, in the middle of a park by myself at night wearing skis where I couldn't run and someone came up behind me and scared me. Like, okay. And I don't even know if that was the guy's intention. It doesn't really matter. But there's a whole other side to all of this too, which is the fact that being an unhoused person in this country is incredibly unsafe is incredibly violent. And, you know, just this past weekend, someone was murdered uh, not too far from where I live, who was known uh, in the neighborhood as as someone who was unhoused, is an individual named Gilles Gosselin. He was 54. I mentioned this on the Daily News. And he was murdered by two young people as he was sleeping in a spot where he usually sleeps if he can't get a room in one of the major shelters. And that is what it's like, actually, to be unhoused in this country. And and if you're a drug user, it's like playing Russian roulette with drugs that you may or may not be able to test to see if they're going to kill you. And that is violence. That is a lack of safety. It isn't the person walking by and seeing it. It isn't, it isn't even the person walking by and having being, being, getting yelled at. Like that's not, that's not the violence. The violence is, is what is keeping individuals in violent situations. 
And, you know, the news of Jules Gosselin being murdered and, and, and the two the two people who were charged and they were young, they're 18 years old and 22 years old. Uh, it was first degree murder charges and there's no information for why. But that that means that there was a targeted attack. I would say probably a hate crime if they're targeting someone who's unhoused. There's no conversation about that in, in any of the national discussions. And and I think that that's a little bit curious because if if, the, if there's a hate crime that's happened against a, a person who's unhoused somewhere in this country, I mean, that's fucking important. That's really important news for us all to be aware of and to talk about. Now, the other piece of news that happened this past weekend is the woman who wrongly accused Emmett Till of sexual harassment and which then resulted in his murder. Emmett Till, of course, was 14 years old. She just died this past weekend. So she lived her whole life. And it's like another extreme. I mean, I'm not making a direct comparison here, obviously, but another example of white womanhood and the 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 the, the honor of of and, and 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 ability to be believed of what you're saying because you didn't like the way that someone looked or the way that someone looked at you or both of those things together. And, and and this is this is this is the history on which on which we white women we exist and we need to understand how we fit into that history and we've got a decision either we perpetuate that history or we refuse to perpetuate that history and if you're going to perpetuate that history by using fake notions of safety and using fake notions of oh my god it's just so complicated like what are we supposed to do like i'm really caught in a catch 22 here it's like no 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 this is not actually difficult this is really not difficult that if you in your own mind don't have an alternative to what you do if you feel unsafe in a public place and your only option is to call the police, then you're fucking part of the problem. Yeah, um, I, I think it would be good to, to close this episode with a little bit of um, a, uh, a, a bit of a story, like a historical um, story and some stuff that I've just been uh, researching and reading a lot about. And it has to do with um, the battered women's movement in the United States um, that arose in like the late 60s and the 70s. Are you familiar with this? I'm not. Okay. So, you know, this is at a time uh, in the United States where, you know, uh, intimate partner violence isn't really um, uh, like... uh, illegal or addressed in the way that it is today. And so movement uh, popped up um, to, to, to start having um, authorities, the law um, shift in, in both how they're acting and, and what is the written letter of the law to, um, to, to start to take action um, against the way that, that women are being uh, harmed in their, uh, in their relationships uh, and there are several different strategies that could be, be uh, taken. And this is second wave feminism. And so what ends up happening is a bit of a rift between white women and uh, um, non-white women. Uh, and white women who are uh, by and large leading these movements are insistent that the, that the solution is through um, policing and the courts and that it needs to like there needs to be new laws of like mandatory arrest when uh, women are are calling uh, the the police and saying that they are experiencing intimate partner violence, there needs to be stronger um, uh, uh, punitive measures put on uh, on people uh, uh, who are exact who are the abusers in this situation. And um, non-white women are like really skeptical of this approach and are like, please don't do this is not the way forward. This is going to make things harder. There's all sorts of reasons why. Um, and they make really great arguments, but they don't win the day. And, uh, and what ends up happening is that many of these laws actually come into effect. And, uh, the, the, what, what that results in is a, a lot of federal money and a lot of state money that is, um, to be going uh, to supporting uh, women who've experienced this sort of violence go directly to the police to bolster um, their ability to make arrests. And Nora, do you know what ends up happening in terms of the arrest rates? Mm, they go up. They definitely go up. Uh, they go up uh, a little bit for uh, abusers and for, for men uh, uh, generally who are being called. Uh, w- w- I mean, when the police are being called, show up. But they go up 600% for women. Oh. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because as you probably can guess, the police are set up to support the structures that already exist. And when you have a rule of mandatory arrest and you're showing up at a place, you're not showing up when the thing is happening, you're showing up later, and you're not able to stop whatever happened to, to get to that point, and you ask the, the people who are in that situation what happened, and you hear two different stories that are not exactly the same, what the police uh, have ended up doing with their mandatory punitive measures is just arresting all the adults and removing of course. the children from their families. And it has caused such a massive, massive issue. And it's because it was never, they were never addressing the root causes of um, what has happened here or um, trying to support the victims uh, or trying to create a true sense of safety, just relying on this mythical idea of like this this apparitional police savior showing up and solving all of the problems. Like we know that it doesn't work. And even even in the cases where it's like, you know, we're 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 creating this this resolution for the, you know, the 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 um, the vision of, of, the, of the victim who is like the perfect victim, the white woman whose safety has been um, harmed, that is just used as a justification. It's not, it's, it, it doesn't play out in reality to make that scapegoat safer, ever, because it's not what police do. <laughs> they don't make you safer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, that's just a little bit of a cautionary tale based on like uh, a real like reality that uh, continues to exist to this day that is just like such a stunning um, uh, marker of like what a faulty strategy it is to continue to rely on uh, the police for any sort of, of creation of safety uh, for people mm. uh, who, who find their safety in jeopardy. Well, and that's that history is actually very much still present, because if you look at groups like the Canadian Femicide Observatory, which does very good work to keep track of femicides in Canada. And and thanks to them, it's the only reason why we know anything about how how often uh, there are victims of gender based uh, violence or intermittent partner violence or domestic violence or violence within the family or however you want to define it or, or explain it. But they're also carceral feminists. And I think that, that this is the thing that looms over this whole conversation. And, and, and a lot of people that are defending calling the police, they're all carceral feminists. Carceral feminism sees the courts, the police and prisons as being the solution at the end of the day. I mean, you know, people might dance around it a little bit and say, well, they're not maybe the solution, but but they are part of the solution. It's like they're not. But they see the, the, the state through like agents of force as being how we're going to get rid of patriarchy, which is like just so funny, right? And so the feminist, the Femicide Observatory specifically, they are calling, uh, in addition to police boards, which is like big red flag, but they're calling for the criminal code to be changed to make domestic violence even more illegal than it already is. And I'm not sure, saying if you've seen this, but this has been something that they've been on now for more than a year. I've written about it. And I don't know. I don't I mean, I know very well where the state of the feminist movement in Canada, it's not very fucking strong or there or present or anything. But no, they're like other than the, the work of, of, of abolitionists who are who do excellent, excellent work. There doesn't seem to be any appetite for mainstream feminists to even engage with these conversations. And instead, it's like the second that someone and like, let's be clear, the individual who we're talking about has, has made a career of being a high profile feminist. Like the second that um, the the rubber hits the road and, and a decision has to be made and then you reach for the police, that is carceral feminism. And, and it's deadly and it's violent and it's not going to fix things. It's not going to make anybody safer at all. It's certainly not going to make women who are not white or who are disabled or who are uh, impoverished or in, in any other marginalized uh, situation. It's not going to make them more safe, obviously. And if we're not putting the people who are the least safe at the center of our feminist politic, then then it's shit. <laughs> like, it's as simple as that. It's total shit. Yeah. And it's like also like I believe in our ability to come up with like better solutions than after a thing has happened, someone should show up and like do a thing that makes somebody else's somebody feel safe like that. That's not a real strategy. That's like like a a, a 
fucking fairy tale. Like, I just don't understand um, why. Well, I do understand. I know why we why we keep um, uh, defaulting to this because it's, it's like harder to come up with like real solutions for things. It's harder to address the re- the source of the problem, and it's harder to think about prevention. And for all the folks who who would respond to this, because we've seen this multiple times before, with like, yeah, okay, we can work on prevention, but what are we going to do with the about the situations that are happening right now? And that's why we need the police. I continue to say, no, those situations don't need the police. But and we can come up with other things like stuff that already we know works. Like if if people have options of places to go, like shelters, if they're not like economically reliant on. Um, on on someone that that makes them unsafe, they can like leave a a terrible situation. But we could also, I don't know, we could we could come up with a service where someone is able to call uh, a group of people who will show up and help you get out of the home, take you somewhere safe, like that is actually concerned with the victim, take you somewhere safe where you can stay for a little while and you won't be found or whatever. Like we could create that service for someone who is in imminent danger. But we don't. We rely on the police who don't do that or support that or solve any of like, I mean, come on. There's like multiple ways that we can think about uh, solving some of the, the issues that are always coming up to justify the, the existence of police, Not, all of which continue to exist, despite the, the fact that the police have grown and grown and grown over all the time that they have fucking existed and have not eliminated these problems. So it's like, please, let's stop being lazy about this. And actually, you know, like fucking if you are a white woman seeing this stuff, like you should be indignant at it. You should be fucking pissed off that it continues to be used as a way to justify harm against other people and actually uh, start to think about, like, what could we actually do to support people who are in imminent danger and what could we actually do to prevent um, that type of, uh, uh, of danger from encroaching on their world. And for fuck's sake, think about the safety of people, like the actual safety of people who are being pointed at to say like, you're, you're making me feel unsafe. Think about their actual safety um, before you respond with something knee jerk that is just, um, you know, that comes from um, stereotypes, prejudices, and the fucking way that we marginalize people in this society already.